Okay, so we are back. It's just a few minutes later for us. Um, and we are going to sort of pick up where we left off, talking about a few more types of psychotherapy and then other things we think that are helpful about psychotherapy. So I know, Mill, you had mentioned in the latter part of our last episode that there were a couple types of psychotherapy that you really like to utilize yourself with patients. Do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, in an effort to be like the most obscure person possible in my musical and personal tastes, I feel like maybe that's why I gravitated towards more unconventional things. But uh, so the two things that I trained in that could not be more like diametrically opposed to each other were narrative therapy and intensive short-term psychodynamic psychotherapy, or also known as Davenlu. Um, I think I'll start by talking about ISTDP and intensive short-term uh, or Davenlu because it's kind of it's got a fun story. Um, so it was during the era of Freud and this, this like surgeon from Iran came to Montreal, um, where my own part of my own heritage is from. And, uh, you know, was at McGill and, and was wanting to become a psychoanalyst from a surgeon. And so take every stereotype you think about a surgeon and like then throw that into a guy that suddenly became a psychiatrist and, you know, is from Iran. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? I mean, but but it's actually interesting because he was a very humanistic, like immensely, like warm person, um, and it's just like he was a again. It's always a cult of personality, like, and it's always someone that's like a little bit irresponsible, and um, so yeah, you know, like to, to give a little background, like you know, the, the Persian language like doesn't have pronouns, and so like every time you work with a Persian doc, like they'll always mess up people's pronouns because they just like don't get it. They're like, why are people so like we don't even have them. Um, she, he, like, they're just people, um, which is, like, very refreshing to me. Um, I, I, I'm totally pro no pronouns for anyone. Yeah, my favorite meme is, like, I have no pronouns. Please do not refer to me. Please forget that I even exist. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I reference that many times. Yeah. That's why I refuse to put pronouns anywhere it's because, you know, I just want to be in a world where nothing exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um such a vibe um so yeah definitely was like he did psycho psychoanalysis and he's like this takes too long which is like what all of us say right like we're always like this is like you want me to do this for 10 years are you kidding me um so he's like i'm a therapist I'm, I'm a surgeon like ser- therapy should be like surgery you find the you know neurosis and you cut it out with a knife um and so he developed this very intensive style of approaching people's problems which is basically like very confrontational heavily rooted in transference and counter-transference, and you basically ask someone a question that really gets at the core of the issue that they're presenting you with, and then confronting them in a very confrontational manner, and then when they start to sort of use defense mechanisms, and he sort of decided that all the CBT positive defense mechanisms, as you know we call them, were all neurotic in actuality, and they were all a barrier for the way that you really felt, and that what was really important was to actually feel your feelings. And in my work with, like, young men who are tending towards, like, the alt-right mentality, um, which I've, I've done a little bit of work with, like, especially in the video gaming community, which is an interest of mine, mm-hmm. um, there's a real block of actually feeling how you feel and saying what you say. And people develop all sorts of really horrible coping mechanisms for, like, expressing their actual feelings of anger, you know, trauma, sadness. And so Davenlu's whole whole vibe was, like let's stop beating around the bush. Let's stop letting people talk around their feelings. Let's confront them directly. And he created this central dynamic sequence that's basically a way of 
you know, rolling right up into someone's resistance and then backing off just enough for them to like not walk out of your door while also challenging them. It's like, you're here. If, if you didn't want to confront your feelings, you can leave. You're here by your own willpower. And really stressing that like they're doing this all on their own. You know, the sort of joke, like how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> just one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. It's <laughs> my oh, favorite man. joke. And it, like, underlies, like, all the therapy, right? Like, everything we do is not involuntary. Like, the person you're working with, you're, it's a partnership. Like, they're coming it's to you. In. You're a guide. But, like, you know, you're just pointing the way. They're walking the steps themselves. Um, even though it feels like you're you're having to, like, literally move their legs sometimes, mm. you know? Um, but you're, you're doing it together. And so that was his approach. And, and it involves a lot of the transference, counter-transference. So one of the essential steps that is really striking. And you can go on YouTube and watch videos of intensive short-term psychodynamic psychotherapy. I'm gonna um, know, by the way, I'm intrigued. It's amazing. And, and it is like the shortcut to, to this. And they talk, talk about an unlocking. And when you see one, it's really striking because someone who's very, very heavily defended will all of a sudden just have this immense outpouring of emotion. And like it, it stereotypically involves like the patient becoming very frustrated with the therapist. And the therapist acknowledging that they're frustrated and says, I can see that you're angry. He's I'm not angry. Well, then why are you clenching your fists? Like, your knuckles are white. And he's like, oh, and they sort of do that, and then the tension goes somewhere else in their body. And it also comes from neurology, right? Like, if someone's imagining sprinting, like, you can actually measure, like, electric potentials in the muscles in the sequence that they would be sprinting. Like, yeah. if someone is thinking of something funny, even if they're not smiling, the muscles that would be involved in smiling or laughing are firing at a really low level. Yeah, we that's actually what we do for um, when we're doing EEG or uh, electroencephalograms to you know measure brain waves for looking for epilepsy, seizure activity. One of the you can kind of elicit different brain waves, which can either be pathologic or physiologic. And one of the rhythms that we look for, it's called, I think it's called mu. Oh my God. Um, I, I don't remember. So it, it doesn't matter, but, um, I think it's mu the mu rhythm and you get that by either moving or thinking about moving one side of your body. So it, it like you're saying it almost moving and thinking about it kind of, or, you know, elicit the same response um, when you look at the EEG. So it's cool. Emotions are limbic, right? So like we can also inhibit our emotional response to things. And the, the idea was that like that's a neurotic and unhealthy thing to do. And like we should actually be in touch with how we feel, understand it, and experience the full weight of our emotions, whether it's sadness, anger, whatever it is, and sort of, you know, very Jedi-like let it flow through you, whether it's and initially the step is let the hate flow through you, right? If you're angry at your therapist for asking you how you feel about your abusive father, you're going to be really upset. And so there's often people describing, you know, like, I'm, I'm upset with you. Okay, well, if you really let loose, you know, the, the inner animal inside of you, what would you do to me? Um, and they're like, well, I wouldn't do anything. We're like, well, that's the repressed part of you. But like, what does that inner animal part of you want to do? And sometimes people will get these descriptions of wanting to dismember their therapist and Oftentimes, um, at, while they're having this really emotional, angry response, you'll ask them to focus on the eyes of the person they're imagining. You never direct it towards yourself, right? You're like, if I was sitting in that chair right next to you, what would you do to me? Can you show me how you would dismember me? Um, and people are having these very like animalistic, angry responses. And once they've sort of settled through that, what's underneath that is this immense amount of emotions. And oftentimes they'll be like, 
for some reason I'm thinking about my father now, or I'm thinking about, you know, my ex-wife, or I'm thinking about, you know, my brother that passed away, and, and these sorts of things, like, come out once they've exhausted sort of their adrenaline, angry response. Um, they're often just so exhausted by that that they, they can't defend against it anymore, and then you get to the, the nice, squishy marshmallow core that exists in all of us. Um, and so I love ISDTP because it, it's so effective for people that have high resistance. And Habib Davinlu was like infamous for like asking people about like very probing, like inappropriate questions just to see how they would respond. Um, and I kind of love that. But also, you know, when asking about resistance, if you were to res rate the resistance of the average physician, you know, from one to 10, what do you think that the average psychiatrist's resistance would be from a scale of one to 10? Hi. What would you say? 10. So his joke was like, no, 20. You know, that was like, he would say things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd go for that too. I was so, going to say it's, it's going to be worse than any patient. That's why CBT doesn't work on us. Yeah. Because our resistance is so high. Like, you think you can like intellectually maneuver around like someone who's psychologically well-versed? Like, no. CBT is going to bounce right off of people like that. Um. And that's, that's why I find it so valuable, is that it's a special kind of tool. It's a very strangely shaped hammer, but wow, when no, it works, it's amazing. That's great. It definitely, you know, it's going to take a candidate that's, that's ready for it. Yes. But for the right individual that's sort of like consensually going into it, I think, it could be really, really, really good. Because I know even with like, I've never done that type of um, psychodynamic, but the type that I did do, you know, you go a little more slowly with the challenges but I found man so many patients will just not admit that they're angry towards you they'll deny they'll even leave therapy before admit that they're having some type of like negative feeling towards you it's I, I, you know. <laughs> I walked away from a psychodynamic psychotherapist who I had feelings about um that like were negative and were never addressed. The countertransference and transference. I mean, the countertransference was addressed. The transference was never asked about. And it wasn't until I got someone that was a little bit more willing to challenge me that mm -hmm. I had that positive response um, in a more psychodynamic approach. That was admittedly more of a brief approach. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So it's a weirdly shaped hammer, but like when you have someone that's just not participating in the process. If they're willing, they, they may be a candidate for something that's more intensive, more challenging, more confrontational. Yeah, that makes sense. And your other type that you really like is narrative, and you said narrative. it's essentially the opposite of this, so explain that. Yeah, <laughs> narrative therapy, at its core, the way I experience performing narrative therapy with people, it's a lot more like supportive psychotherapy, except that narrative therapy's basis is in post-structuralism, and the idea that like medicine is about hierarchies and, and narrative therapy is about abolishing all hierarchies and being present in the moment. So it's very like 1960s movement kind of vibe, right? We're like, we're going to abolish all structures. We're going to be present. But of course, there is always some structure. Yeah. And so it's innately, <laughs> like, it's a, right? So the idea is that when people are talking, we have two ways of thinking. We have a sort of narrative way of thinking that's telling what happened to us. And then there's a second part of it that's telling why are we talking about this in the first place? Why is this important? And mm. it's about formulating questions, the perfect 
you know, like, shaped question to elucidate something and shift from the landscape of identity, which is like narrative, the story that you're telling that happened to you, and the landscape of meaning, which is why is this important to you? Um, and what's so striking is you get those similar like outpourings of emotion by simply pausing and asking someone at the right moment, why is that important? Why was that attending doctor's recognition of you and that, that you were a good, good physician, right, important? Uh, why was it important when you were working that that one patient um, said that, that one sentence to you? What did that remind you of? Like, those are the kind of questions where you shift from telling a story where you're in your kind of rational rational mind, if we're going to use the DBT framework, mm-hmm. to, like, compare the two, to the wise mind, where you're analyzing your feelings and participating in the narrative process. Um, it's great for trauma because it's not imposing structure. It's really sitting with someone and inviting yourself and them to feel something together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, cool. it sounds wonderful. It's I love a it. it's like a hybrid of like you said supportive and humanistic and a little bit of the, you know, psychodynamic where you're opening up to what is their interpretation of it. So, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, for someone with trauma specifically, um being super challenging would be the very, very wrong approach. So, uh, um, you know, everybody has to have a few approaches that they're familiar with because once again, it's not like a one size fits all situation. So that's lovely. I want to learn more about that one too, because I like it. I think it's touched upon in a lot of the other therapy modalities, but it's maybe not so clearly stated that like, you know, this is why we're doing this. Yeah, I, I most appreciate it in working with people that were unhoused when, mm-hmm. you know, things were really difficult. But it was possible to find meaning and significance and really important moments that defined their humanity and their strength, even in what was really a dire situation. I mean, being unhoused in the Northeast, where it dips below zero, it's snowing half the year, is a, is a really difficult experience. But there were moments in their lives that were really powerful yeah Um, yeah yeah and you know I had patients in the same situation and I did I guess my own form of like supportive hybrid with something and I think you know uh at the end of the day what any of us would say who have been in therapy or have been therapists is what's even stronger than whatever the modality is the first thing, the most important thing, the thing that starts getting established when you get into just are in the same room or nowadays it's on, on a screen with someone is like, is there like a trust and a comfort? And the studies have shown that more so than anything else, modality or anything, the biggest indicator of success of psychotherapy is the patient feeling like they're aligned with the therapist. So just that comfort. And I think for each individual, that's going to be something different. And part of someone being a really good psychotherapist is knowing what each individual needs and becoming a little bit of that for them. I think the one type of therapy that we wanted to hit on 
because we get so many questions about it that we haven't, is EMDR. And Mill, I'm going to let you take this one away. Oh, no. Um, this is something that, like, in, in all honesty, I don't talk about a lot. Um, so this is the fun time to talk about an experience I've had that's, you know, not something that's always public. And, um, yeah, so I actually did try EMDR, and I tried it with a really skilled therapist who, again, was the same person that used a little bit of CBT approach and was, like, very fluid in their approach to treat a person. And it's why, like, you know... It's like if you're a therapist, you want to have multiple orientations about mm-hmm. able to do things because it's like you don't want to be a doctor that only has one drug. You don't want to be a psychiatrist, you know, 30, 50 years ago now. I'm feeling old. Where you only had Thorazine <laughs> and like everyone got Thorazine, right? Like yeah. you don't want to be like that. And being a therapist is the same. And so um, we came upon this this issue in my life where my earliest memories were of witnessing my sibling's death. Um and I was like three, and it's the first thing that I remember um, for whatever reason. And I think a lot of my decision to become a physician was like involving that memory. So it was like, you know, taking a psychodynamic and analytical approach. But I had to do pediatrics at some point, and like I was mortified to do pediatrics. And oddly, like I wanted to do child and adolescent psych, and um, I had so much countertransference towards the parents because I felt like they were ungrateful because I said, you know, your, your child is medically healthy, but emotionally having difficulties. Why can't you just sit and be with them? Um, and it was too intense for me, but it was through that therapy that I was like, it's okay. Like to, I can handle it now, but I also don't want to purposely subject myself to that like every day for the rest of my life and be like yelling at parents. Um, it's probably not helpful. So this therapist recognized this and was training an EMDR from one of the people that developed it, like, so sort of second lineage. You know, everyone, like, wants to brag about how far they are from the master. It's a bit like being, you know, like studying kung fu or something or, you know, jujitsu, how far you are from the original. But um, decided that this would be, like, a, a good treatment to try. And subjectively, I was, like, a little bit skeptical, as I am with everything. And, and so was he. But we decided to try it anyway because it was kind of like, let's try this out. If it's bogus, like, great, whatever. You know, we can keep doing what we were doing before. And if it helps, great. That's We'll also do that too. And the idea behind EMDR is that you have this alternating stimulation between the left and the right side of your body. It can either be tactile, auditory, visual, tapping. Like, the only thing that's important is that you have, like, bilateral stimulation of some kind of sensory input. And the idea is that you you utilize this and you hold some traumatic memory and a reprocessing concept while being distracted by your sensory input. And it allows you to perform the sensory reprocessing or the the mental reprocessing of this traumatic event. And so we did it. Um, And it was really weird because I didn't expect there to be any effect of it. I was like, this is this was kind of fun and kooky and I, I like I'll try anything, you know, like I'm willing yeah. to subject myself to experiences of things that I may not be believing in. But for the next like week I had the strangest dreams and apparently that's a common thing in EMDR. And they were like really weird, traumatic, bizarre, like quasi nightmares. But it was very strange because afterwards, like, any traumatic memory that a patient would bring up, because I was doing peds at the time, um, and seeing sick kids, you know, with with epilepsy and stuff, um, like my sibling had. And it was like you're, like, rubbing on a scar where it was like, ooh, I can see where this would have made me, like, 
start crying or have a panic episode earlier or just feel very uncomfortable. And it's like mildly uncomfortable, but there's also this weird covering emotionally where I'm like able to function and acknowledge it, which like, you know, that's what psychoanalysis is supposed to do after like 10 years. Um, but it happens so rapidly over the course of a week. And I've never experienced anything like it. Um, people who do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy describe something really similar. And that was the closest thing I can explain to what that was like. It's just like EMDR kind of felt like that. And I feel like when it works, everyone describes it the same way. You feel really weird for like a week after doing a particular memory. And then it stops eliciting a somatic or body response. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I had no idea you, you'd been through all that. And I can imagine, you know, how difficult it would be. Pete's was bad enough for me. And I don't have a story like that. But just like, honestly, if you work in a Pete's department during medical school or residency, there's a lot of kids there who are suffering from bad parenting. And I think it can be difficult even if you don't have any personal history um, with anything that's going on. And, you know, before you told me that story, when you had told me you were going to get a lot of hate for your opinion on EMTR, I thought you were going to see that it was bad. And I was like, I'm going to have to argue with you about this because I have so many close friends and they never described it as beautifully as you just did. But I have so many friends with trauma histories that EMDR just like healed them. So it's really interesting hearing, you know, you being able to tell your story and then you have even one session, there was improvement. It's just like, it's crazy to think how things must be wired for that to occur. Yeah, especially the way that it was a process, much like healing is. Healing happens in stages and the way you were describing the dreams and then kind of the the different response when you were on peds and you know it it sounds like it was something that was internalized and then it did its process you know after the well after the session pete's epilepsy during residency was my favorite rotation i had a wonderful time i connected with the kids i didn't have any like weird reactions in my body like i would have before like i did before um I just enjoyed being present, emotionally present with kids that were having seizures. Like, it, it was mm-hmm. fine, you know? Um, which normally would have not been okay with me, like, at all. Right. Um, it and, was surreal. You would have probably, unfortunately, seen it everywhere. You know, it's, what it, it's yeah. like we were talking about the yellow Jeep, you know? <laughs> it, it, you're going to be very attuned to you know, avoiding it, but then also being hyper aware because it's really, especially, you know, in the ER and Pete's neurology, it's, it's unavoidable and even psychiatry. And, you know, I feel like that the therapy came at the right time for you to kind of get through that hurdle. Trauma controls your life when it's there. You don't realize how much it controls you, but it really does. And yeah, it's funny because you know, people always think I'm going to like poo-poo on the MDR, but like that experience approached with great skepticism. Even even my therapist was like, I just learned this. It seems kind of cool. Let's try it. And like that was the right thing to say for someone like me. If he'd been a fanatical, like I'm all into EMDR, I'd have been like, <laughs> peace out. I'm going to see you later. Um, you know, like, but in, in actuality, that was like the perfect confluence of factors in my life. And um, 
We don't know why it works, though. Like, because the, the binaural stimulation thing, like, maybe it doesn't have to be present for it to work, but maybe it does. Like, the, the evidence base is so, like... If I had to guess, I would say... A neurologist, yes, and go I, for it. <laughs> this is, I'm saying this blind, you know, we can maybe do an update on it at some point on the Instagram or something. If I had to guess, I would say it has something to do with um, the gating phenomenon, uh, gate, as in, like, open and close a gate. Yeah. When you hurt... Oh, my God, yeah. When you, like, hurt yourself, like, if you... Let's say, like, you have, like, a funny bone, like or you hit your funny bone, um, and you know how you rub it, the rubbing of that painful stimulation, or the painful sensation, is actually supposed to block the pain. So, you know, you, you stub your toe, you rub it, or you massage it, and it's the the soft tactile stimulation that's supposed to overpower or kind of take up all of the um you know receptors so that it blocks the pain so i'm wondering if it has something to do with that but i would also have to look into something about neglect if you're stimulating both cortical hemispheres um and then my last thought would have been um like the actual rhythm because i i've been looking into like tapping therapy a little bit yeah. Um, with some of my patients with like Louis body and, and um, mm-hmm. so I have three theories. I'll have to let you know which one is the most well, accurate. <laughs> these are all testable, but like it's such a hard thing to test. But like you know, I, I mean, I feel like eventually someone will be clever enough to des- devise a way to figure out how it works because we we know that it does work. We just don't know why. And like as a psychiatrist, that doesn't really alarm me because like welcome to the field. Like we don't know yeah. why half the stuff placebo. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. If it works, it works. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. a big believer in that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I've, and I have had so many exper- different experiences with therapy, too. Um, and I can share a little bit more about my different ones because I've, I've been to, like, ten therapists in my life. I, didn't, I never found a magician, I guess. So I had to try different ones and also was living in different places and at different stages of life. But I mentioned the creepy guy who I went to see in college a couple of times was helpful, but was also creepy. And then I didn't go back to therapy again until I was like maybe like a third year medical student. And I found a a great therapist, but I think I was in like a very difficult time period and like lots of bad things were going on in medical schools. Like essentially my life was a disaster. And I think, like, our third session or something, she asked a little bit about my childhood, and I, like, couldn't tolerate it, and I was just, like, crying too much, and I had to, like, take a break. So I think I took a break for, like, six months. Um, And then I went back, and I was ready. Yeah, and when I took a break, I had texted my friend. Like, my instinct was just to, like, ghost my therapist. And my friend was, like... But I asked my friend, like, what should I do? She said, just, like, tell her you need a break. And then that way, like, if you're ready to go back or if you want to go back later, that door is still open. So I was mature, and I did that. It's not you, Uh, it's me. (laughs) Yeah. And then, like, six months later, I was ready to go back. And, you know, I think I mostly would, like, complain about medical school and things. And I think I would avoid anything that was, like, actually deep. But... She was such a good therapist, and she just had, like, 
she was a questioner. She, I would say she was probably like, you know, she'd be more along the psychodynamic, interpersonal, humanistic narrative. Who knows? One of those things. Any of those. But anyway, she had like a approach um, where she just, her her questions, she was never challenging, but just like her questions and her statements made me gain insight even though it didn't even happen in the sessions it's like when you go home like later you're starting to think about things that you never thought about before so through my work with her it helped me develop enough insight that so I couldn't see her when I finished residency because I was moving but right after I moved I was able to end the abusive relationship I was in and it was because of my insight through working with her and I think she's like the model of if I was trying to emulate one person the most and as a therapist with my patients it's her just like the fact that you know whatever little things she said somehow poked things enough that you know, I was able to develop that insight on my own, but with her assistance. So, you know, I think about things too, like when I was training on our psychoanalyst and they were like, can't let your patient touch you. Like, I would like hug my therapist after every session and she always let me hug her and she never like pushed me away. And I was always like a crying, sobbing mess that needed like 10 piles of tissues. And she was just like, you know, she was what I needed if I told her, I couldn't tolerate something, you know, she back off. She was definitely trying to be what I needed, and I think that's appropriate. So she is, like, the therapist that really changed changed my life, like, in a, a really positive direction. And then I didn't do any therapy for, like, at least a year. And then I realized um, I was having, like, a lot of like nightmares and stuff about my prior relationship and that was still an issue. So I realized I had some level of like, some level of trauma from it. And I w was afraid it was gonna keep me from having successful relationships in the future. Um, so I went to see a therapist and I only ended up seeing her a few times because I was like essentially like I have this issue I'm like, you know, I can't get this person out of my head and like it's really negative and it's making me like all these negative memories. I'm just having like flashbacks a lot of the time. And she did something that like she had me like view my traumatic memories like a movie or something and like think positive things about them. And then all of a sudden I was all better. So I like the, that was like the second time I saw her. I saw her like a third time. And then I was like, honestly, I'm really busy right now. I don't think I have time for therapy. But it was also because I was, like, better. Just took, like, <laughs> one session. And then everything, like, went away. And so, you know, sometimes those weird things people do to help with trauma, like, I don't know why it works, but it works. Um, and then later in residency, this was probably, like, a year after I stopped seeing that therapist, I just, like, every single thing in my life was going wrong. And I was having, like crying spells and it was the one and only time in my life I went on like an SSRI for a little while because 
everything that could go wrong was going wrong, and I was a disaster. And I started seeing a therapist at the beginning of my third year of residency who was just more supportive. And I ended up seeing her until I completed residency. And she was just like a really good support. There was no like insight or anything. It's just like resident was beating me down into the ground, like into a pulp. And I just needed someone to be a support. And she was like a very nurturing mom, great mom to me, which is, you know, what a lot of us want our therapists to be. And so that was a great experience. Um, And then more recently, like over the summer, after Joan and I moved in together, I thought we could benefit from like a couples therapist, but I knew specifically what I wanted. Like at this point, if you're, if you're done (laughs) residency, you know a lot about therapists, how to find the therapist you want. You know how to read a bio on like psychology today and like screen for what you want. Also being at this stage of my life, like money wasn't as much of an issue, which it can be for therapy, unfortunately. You got to look for the chunky turquoise jewelry. That's yeah. The, yeah. Oh man. That's, or that's the kicker. With the horse yeah. and the therapist is actually the horse, not the, not the person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we're all looking for whatever we're looking for and Usually, if you if you know where to look and you know how to decipher people's bios, you can you can find the right thing. But yeah, uh, a lot of good therapists, I will say, are unfortunately cash only, and their prices do not have sliding scales. So once you're intending, it's a little bit easier. But yeah, uh, Jen and I worked with this wonderful therapist for, and, and I knew what I was looking for ahead of time. I just wanted someone who was just trying to help people make their relationships better helping people communicate better worked with her for like six months like phenomenal uh definitely up there with like my experience at med school is like one of my two best most helpful therapy experiences and I never rule out like I'm not in any therapy right now but I always think of it as something that whenever I could benefit from it I will be in it I don't you know I think a lot of people get sort of egotistical like eh I don't need therapy or me and my significant other don't need therapy or like whatever, but it's like, okay. But everybody has issues at some point. And if you can find another way to that helps to resolve those issues, great. But therapy is always a good modality and it should never be like scoffed at or looked down upon. Like what's wrong with just wanting to improve yourself and wanting to be better? Like that's always a very positive thing in my opinion. I have, <clears throat> I have a therapy, you know, experience that I think will definitely kind of segue into like the rest of our, our discussion. Um, it's a, it's, it's more of like, it's a cautionary tale too, about kind of looking for what you need. So, um, I've struggled with OCD my whole life and I, it would come in waves mostly around when I was stressed and in residency, like probably the most stressful year of residency, I, it just came back with like a vengeance out of nowhere. It was like a wave, like all of a sudden it was just terrible, terrible, terrible. And I remember frantically dialing on the phone looking for, you know, I didn't really understand what I needed. And this is as a neurology resident with a little bit of, you know, psychiatry. I had no idea what I was looking for. And I would call 
you know, different, I would just Google psychiatrist, Google psychologist. I really didn't even know what I needed. And I would, I remember I would like almost cry, be like, do you have any opening appointments? Like I couldn't even like get out my information. I was so distressed. And I ended up seeing a psychologist by my house and looking back it was kind of like a fever dream like I honestly thought that this could this easily could have been a contemporary of Beck Freud Ellis everybody we talked about he had the velvet couch he had like it was in his house it was like you look around and on the wall there would be like a creepy picture um there'd be like it was just like clutter everywhere but just creepy mementos it was like a movie scene of a psychiatrist's office from the 1930s. Um, so that being said, I remember I was like, okay, I'm going to, we're going to finally, I'm going to talk to someone about my OCD. I'm going to get some help. Like this was a, a psychologist who practiced uh, psychodynamic therapy, which was absolutely not what I needed because no (laughs) and and here's what happened that I think is really important to share with everybody I I I told him I described what was happening to me like hey um does this ever happen to other people you know like you get these obsessions and then you got to do this like compulsion and, and, and things like this these rituals and he was like he he hit he just started off the bat he asked me a question about my mom or like about my childhood and I was like uh okay I knew like immediately I was like oh no no no. um I see oops and then me you know I have I hate confrontation I hate cutting people off so I kept going back to him but I would like think about so sorry things that because I just felt so bad for like oh no so I would like think of things to talk to him about and I'd be like, hey, so I feel like I'm, like, pretty jealous. Like, I don't know. I always compare myself to, like, my friends because, you know, I'm still in residency. And and then, again, right back to the mother. And I was just like, what? And then I was like, this, this probably will ruin my relationship with my mother at this rate. I'm not trying to, like, talk about this. So, um yeah, I needed, as it turns out, medication, <laughs> which I was not going to get from this at all. And it, it, you know, it did it did nothing for me. And I, I think that there is no information out there for people to match their needs to what's out there. Because if you go on people's websites, you know, what practitioners' websites, whether they be, you know, psychiatrists, uh, counselors... It's just like we treat addiction, OCD, anxiety, um, you know, depression, body image, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like this laundry list of things that's like, but do you really treat these things? And it's not good. Yeah. And so part of that, like, you know, I am on psychology today as a private practice psychiatrist. You essentially have to be. That's like where you get your patients. And I scroll through the therapist. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And... And they all list every single thing. And I'm like, I'm a fucking psychiatrist. I don't list all that. And here's the thing. Because first off, lots of people come to me and they want meds and therapy. And actually, a lot of people come to psychiatrists and they just want therapy. And they always say, can you help me? And what I always say is, I can offer help. 
and it might be right for you or it might not be. And I always say, I don't get offended. If it's not working for you, you just let me know. And like, you know, we'll stop working together. And like, I'm like, I always say part of psychiatry training is you learn not to get offended. Like it's not personal. Um, you know, and people should be told that like a therapist can try to offer help, but it's not always going to be right for them. And I'm sorry that you had that experience because it's very extreme in like what can happen. But yes, things like that can happen. And usually that ruins therapy for that person forever. (laughs) I'm very sorry that that happened to you. It's like an extreme. And as Mill and I both know, OCD is usually something that requires very heavy doses of medication. It's like one of the, it's not, if someone is responsive to just therapy, like good for them, but that's a very off. Case. Have you tried it's Zoloft not 100? Try doubling yeah. that. Maybe tripling. Yes. Maybe quadrupling that. <laughs> yeah, and then people like, who have, yeah. have to go above the highest recommended dose for OCD a lot. And I've seen this with like people who are like, you know, the, the and honestly, props to primary care for trying to handle it at all. And they're like on, you know, what seems like a pretty good dose of maybe Zoloft or something like that, an SSRI. And, you know, the patient comes to me and they're like, look, that thing's like taking Skittles. I mean, they said I'd have side effects. It feels like I'm, I'm taking, you know, bad tasting candy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's okay. <laughs> we'll figure this out. But then, like, the therapy for OCD, too, is, like, oddly specific, you know? Like, it's very specific. a strangely shaped hammer. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. If there's- and it is, OCD is one of the things, actually, that's some type of, like, CBT based thing usually works well for, um, yeah. but psychodynamic, you know, no. talking about your mom is not going to no. fix CBT. Because you know what it was, I think it's it goes you go down like the oh you're a perfectionist or oh you're a germaphobe. Did your mom have a really clean house? And I'm like no 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 nope nope I no I knew enough to know that wasn't what was going yeah. on. But it just kind of, and I will say it speaks to how, and we always talk about this, I always get it mixed up, ego dystonic, and how even you can have all the insight in the world and it can still debilitate you. You can know exactly what's going on to the point where I just, you know, as I'm a neurologist, I am constantly reading about OCD I know that there are actually changes in like the basal ganglia on fMRI like I can know everything I choose to know about it and it still is a very real thing that that can cripple yeah. me without the right treatment like it's I mean it's real you know it's a friend of mine yeah. described this experience uh, the first time he took medications for obsessive thoughts and it was in the emergency room like it was very dire and I think they administered Seroquel um, at one point. Mm-hmm. And he said, for the first time in my life, there was me, my thoughts, and there was this other loop of thoughts that were not me. And I could clearly delineate between myself and this other thing. And that's when I realized what that was. And it was like this, you know, like immense moment where like all of a sudden the anxiety was turned down enough to go like, this is this other thing and it rules my life. And then there's me, the person that's dealing with this and that was like a pivotal moment and sort of being like okay i need to do something about this because like this isn't me this isn't how i am this is the thing that i'm suffering from um it's just the clearest most lucid description 
um, from a, a really brilliant human that I've known since I was a wee little little child. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the level of suffering you're both describing, that is usually an individual who's at least going to need medications for a brief period of time. Because when it gets that bad, you're not even capable of participating appropriately in therapy. No. And you and have it, to get, you can't be at that level of suffering. It it's goes just by percentages. So it goes by, and the therapist I have, I've, oh, not the therapist, but the psychiatrist I've seen after that was like, okay, you know, we started you on this. How much of your day did you get back? And I'd be like, um, I would say everything is better by 20%. And they'd be like, okay, we can do better. And, and you know, it got to like 90%, 95%. Great. This is I. I'm realistic about this. I can handle this. And it. And just like kind of you're describing your friend, kind of this other thing delineating from him, it was kind of like shrinking that then. And you know, it, you got to be. It. It might not always completely go away, but you can. You can really get a handle on this with medication and CBT. But at a certain point, it. You really kind of need both. <laughs> yeah. And a reason why I really respect the therapist that I started seeing when I was beginning of my PGY3 year and then my life was a disaster and I was just like going through like 20 tissue boxes again. She straight up told me I need to like go get put on medication like that. The And medication worked like, you know, it was like night and day immediately. Yeah. Um, so I think even if like all of your all of your stress really is external, which a lot of it was. Like I had very objective, terrible things going on, and that's why I was a disaster. I think that sometimes you know your whole brain is just overwhelmed and can't get out of it, and you know you put in some chemicals that for whatever reason make things can make things much easier to tolerate, and then you're at the point where you can start thinking more normally, and you can start appropriately engaging in therapy and getting to a better point then you can actually in those cases oftentimes go off your medication when it's you know some an external external factors that are causing things to go into overdrive so I think a good person always knows what's out of their forte and when to tell someone to get extra help or different help and you know not just rant about your mom to you as the history of psych nerd here for a moment, um, I like to look through old advertisements. It's just a, a thing I enjoy. Like oh, cool. Cars, products. I have like an old Xanax, like ephemera from when it first came out. It's like a holographic coaster. It set your, you know, wine glass on it. It's very, very inappropriate. Um, I found it in a state sale. And so I love this kind of thing. And the original advertisements for SSRIs and antidepressants in general were that it helped psychoanalysis work better. Wow. And it wasn't until the biological insurance, you know, we can sell you a product and McDonaldize, um, you know, mental health treatment and reduce the entire process of therapy and mental health treatment to this prescribing model where it's just about drugs. Um, there's nothing else. You know, there, there is no humanism. There's only, there's only chemicals. We are all, all just chemicals. Like, that wasn't what it was originally. Like, like medicines were supposed to augment the ability to go through therapy. And I still think of them that way, and I, I still truly believe that. And I think so many people like yourself kind of have had this experience where it's like, it's, it's multifactorial, and it's why therapy is important. It's why you can't manualize therapy too much. Um, it's why it's so individualistic. It's why it's important who your therapist is that you identify with them, that they're a little bit like you. Like, 
I see a lot of people in the music industry. I see a lot of alternative people. I see a lot of, you know, polyamorous people, people in alternative lifestyle arrangements, people who live on communes. Like that's, but those are the people that I feel that feel comfortable talking to me. And Mm -hmm. likewise, I feel comfortable talking to them. And so like, we can't reduce our humanity to just being chemicals. And I think therapy never forgets that, but psychiatry is always in danger of pushing to that side. And it takes people who are willing to talk about it like that, about their own experience, exposing their own humanity to remind us that we're not just a chemistry set. Yeah. And you know what? I think, I think that's a wonderful way to, to state that sentiment, which I obviously 1000% agree with. And I think it's also, you know, you, it's, it's great when patients are able to take on that viewpoint too. And to me, it's sad because I think, you know, it's one thing if a patient is going too much the medication route and isn't open to therapy, like, you know, you can only do so much, but I feel like there are so many patients in America who they want to get to the root of the issue. They understand whether it's therapy or something else. They don't want to utilize the Band-Aid. And then whoever is their psychiatrist or prescriber or whoever is just, you know, tossing med after med after med instead of telling them, you know, there's this underlying issue. That's why I love diagnosing borderline personality disorder because it's usually such a relief to the individual like oh why has all these like mood stabilizers not worked for me I feel I felt like a guinea pig by psychiatrist just putting me on medication after medication after medication no they never told me that I could have something called borderline personality disorder they told me I'm bipolar like you know so uh, the there classic is border polar we used to we used <sighs> to joke about the dishonesty that you know, like border polar yeah so I, I think it ends up being really positive for patients as well. So I think what we want to sort of wrap up with is talking about the degrees that psychotherapists carry because one thing I think that people get confused about when they're looking for a psychotherapist is like, okay, what do the degrees mean? So we can talk about that. And then finally, we'll give you a little more advice on how to look for a therapist because I think these are the things that as psychiatrists, you get asked the most. People are like, oh my God, why? How do I find a therapist? And honestly, I only learned a lot of this myself in the past like a year. Like, uh, so don't feel bad if this is new to you. <laughs> so the mill, I see that we had listed the different degrees as, and we'll identify these in a second, but PsyD, PhD, LMFT, and LCSW. And then don't forget, psychiatrists are also trained in therapy, so it can be a DO or an MD. Um, Although generally, if you don't think you need medication at all, it's perfectly fine to um, go to someone who doesn't carry an MD or DO. Uh, generally, I actually only recommend that someone goes to an MD or DO if they think they need more than a therapist could offer, like some type of medical advice or something like that. So I can touch on what PsyD is. PsyD is like the more clinical version of a PhD. It's someone who is getting a doctorate degree, but they are specifically want to do clinical psychotherapy. 
so sidey, I guess it stands. Isn't it like psychology? Psych- probably doc- doctorate. Yeah. Doctorate. There's doctors. Yeah. 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 And so whereas PhD, oftentimes those individuals who have psychology PhDs don't even do therapy. They literally are just researchers, like academic researchers. They can, of course, uh, they do learn therapy and they can get more specialized in therapy and do that. But this ID is the doctorate specifically for someone who wants to be a doctor of psychotherapy. So it's very clinical oriented, heavy clinical hours. LCSW, um, licensed clinical social worker. So that's, they have to get like many thousands of hours of therapy. They can either have a bachelor's in social work or a master's in social work. I find that a lot of the LCSWs actually have the MSW as well, the Masters in Social Work. And can you remind me what the LMFT is for, stands for? Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Oh. So it's another pathway, yeah. Ah, yes. So how does that differentiate? Is that like from the LCSW pathway? I guess they didn't start out as a social worker or... Yeah, so it's, you know, uh, so I had the opportunity of actually working with some LMFT um, trainees mm-hmm. during my narrative training. And you're really just focusing on on psychotherapy. You're not focusing on the science of therapy like a PsyD would. You know, like societies mm-hmm. have some understanding of the, you know, sort of anatomical, you know, biochemical mechanisms. Um, and so we speak a little bit more of the same language. LMFTs are purely focused on delivering therapy. Um, most couples counselors are going to be like LMFTs because it's just more available to them than it is to us because we're distracted by learning anatomy and like, you know, pharmacology yeah. and all that. Um, and so they tend to have like just a purely therapy focus. And then the social workers are the ones where like, you know, if you need to know, if you need to have a question about like housing, um, rules for getting on assistance, like all of that stuff, they also have that knowledge. So like I always find myself, people are asking me like, I need help with housing. I'm like, if you want to know about your brain and also a little bit about therapy, <laughs> great question for me. If you want to know how to get yourself like sliding into Section 8 housing because you qualify for it, but the paperwork is arduous, I am absolutely the wrong person. You could literally ask anybody on the street and they would probably know more than me, which is embarrassing, but like, I didn't get a master's degree in it. And so to assume that I would be able to help them with that also sort of denigrates the, the, a massive amount of work that a master's level clinician in social work does. And so they're they're specialized too. MSWs are very specialized and important to have. Yeah, and honestly, I think mo- every single individual therapist I saw f- for a lengthy period of time was an LCSW. The one I mentioned in med school that was amazing was an MSW. I think the, I guess now that I think about it, the couples therapist I saw must have been an LMFT. Um, you know, so I actually. I don't think I've ever seen a side I think maybe the creepy guy in college was a PhD. <laughs> I'm going to actually have to look up my therapist and see what, what his... Uh... Yeah. And while you're doing that, another thing we want to touch on is the reason it's important to know these degrees is a lot of people may advertise themselves as therapists or counselors or life coaches, and they have no real education, no real training, there. They don't have a license. They they really have no business advertising themselves that way. And um, if you're seeing someone who does not have one of these official degrees that designates, you know, thousands of hours of therapy training, um, please be cautious because you don't know what you're getting yourself into. 
Yeah, you could be seeing somebody, and that's the problem, it's like state by state too, but like there's really very little requirements to call yourself a therapist. Um, even life coaching, I mean, there are places that basically train people in different types of therapy or coping skills. Um, particularly with ADHD, there's some like very rigorous ADHD skills coaching um, certifications that are very like rigorous. But you could also just be going to see someone who doesn't have their, their qualifications up that just like is going to play or replay Joe Rogan podcast episodes for you, you know, like you really don't know. Um, and so it is important that you get someone that has an, an at least you, you know that they know what they're doing theoretically. Still doesn't stop you from experiencing what someone I saw did where they met their therapist in a coffee shop and then they tried to convert them to their religion. Um, the therapist. Yeah. I mean, and this was a qualified therapist who was getting compensation through a major insurance network. And so you know, wow. So I don't want to invalidate people's bad experiences if they went to someone that did have a certification mm-hmm. and it was really bad. Because, like, look, I mean, you can go to a psychiatrist who has an MD or DO and they can also be terrible. I'm not going to stick up for anyone. Um, I've learned in my life not to do that anyway. So, yeah. yeah. I think it, I think it's, you know, as we have all told here, you can have a bad experience with uh, anyone. Um, I'm the first person to say that. But I think it's important to be armed with the knowledge of having a bit of an understanding of the supposed training of the individual that you're seeing. And then it's going to come down to, you know, are, are they, do they seem like a fraud when you meet them? Do they seem like they're actually helpful? Do they seem like someone you can trust? And, you know, if, if they aren't that, then end, end the work together because they should not get offended and you should not waste your time on something that isn't helpful for you. And it may not be that they're a bad therapist. They just may not be the right one for you. I mean, it's like yeah. trying on clothing. Like, you know, you have to, you have to do the vibe check. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so how to find a therapist, the big thing, there's two real ways about it. Uh, one option is if you have insurance, you can call your insurance and you can ask them for a list of covered therapists in your zip code. But I actually think this isn't the best way. I think no matter who you are, the best thing to do is just to go on psychology today and type in any specifics about a therapist and where you're looking to see them. Um, and right now it might not matter as long as you're in the same state because everything's virtual essentially. Hopefully you have some knowledge from this podcast to understand a little more about the bios of everyone and all of that. And if you're looking to work with insurance, you should be able to scroll down and see if they accept your insurance. They should also list uh, a cash price if your insurance isn't accepted. And even if your insurance is not listed, you can always call your insurance and check if they have any coverage for quote out of network providers. And um, then it's really easy on Psychology Today. You can just message someone on there and you shoot them a little like email-like thing. And if they're taking patients, they'll probably get back to you and be able to set something up. So, yeah, I don't understand why it took me until like a year ago to understand this, but that's how long it took me to understand this. I want to throw out one more option because I did therapy at a, at a place like this. Um, if you go to the freeclinics.com website online, um, you can find uh, a therapist there. And the way that it works is a lot of these free clinics operate on a charity charter. And 
like for myself, I volunteered my time there. So for me, it was like I was a resident, so I didn't have to see patients at the state hospital. I could just spend some time there. And they got a free therapist out of it, and I was happy because I didn't have to do, you know, arduous, difficult, stressful work and, and file papers in a, you know, basement somewhere because um, everything was on paper. So I loved it. I enjoyed it. But they operate on a charity charter. And so by looking for free clinics in your area, asking if they take um, – if they have a mental health component to them on that website, freeclinics.com, or just search free clinic and then plus the word your city. Um, there is a charitable organization in most cities that has free or sliding scale, and they'll look at your income information. Uh, they'll have healthcare navigators who are specialists in finding out if you're eligible for Medicaid or Medi-Cal in my state. Uh, and then getting you insured. And they'll find very clever ways of getting you insured and getting you to have some level of coverage. Um, and if not, they'll offer sliding scale therapy. And I've seen unhoused folks that their sliding scale was zero and, and they came in for free. And if they we worked together, they got a job, they were doing well, then then they paid me, you know, fifteen, twenty dollars, me, the organization. Um, and you know, it just varied. Um, but that is a really important resource for the people that are really struggling and really despondent that they can't afford it. They don't have insurance. Uh, search the word free clinics your area, freeclinics.com and start making some phone calls, which I know is a lot to ask for someone experiencing severe depression, but um, there are often very enthusiastic people like myself just hoping that, that we'll contact people who, who need us, who can't afford us. Um, yeah, I had no idea about that. In residency, it was completely free to see me or my colleagues, but, um, you know, we didn't even, like, fully understand that because we heard mixed things until we were, like, senior residents. Um, and then, you know, I think it was just very difficult to get the word out. Uh, you know, like I wouldn't even know how to tell someone, like I can't tell someone a general thing cause it's so different by, from residency to residency. But if there are training programs specifically with psych residents in your area, it might be free to see them. I actually know offhand though, that seeing other therapists in training usually is some type of fee even if it's small fee but for whatever great reason it was absolutely free um to see us residents who were in training and i think we also want to touch on you know there's a lot of these websites that people talk about like better help is a good one or like a main one i'm not going to say a good one a main one that people discuss and I know initially what I heard about these websites when they started is that they were full of uh, dubious life coach types. And now they do actually have a lot of people with legitimate degrees. Um, and it can be anywhere from texting to like video therapy. So it's a broad range. I mean, my thought on it is if texting someone is helpful to you, go for it. But I don't think that's therapy. I think that's just talking to a kind person when you're in crisis um, at best. But, you know, if someone, some people have told me they somehow found like a great psychologist or something that they have uh, tele televideo sessions with um, like every week or whatever. So whatever is right for you is right for you. But definitely... Um, maybe be cautious when utilizing one of those websites. And then I know there's some other websites like Ali's mic went off, so she, she can't speak anymore, but she wrote Cerebral 
in the chat. Cerebral, I don't know how much therapy they do, but I know they do love. If you tell them you have ADHD and cerebral, feel free to take a beleagle battle with me over this. But I've heard from many people that you can dictate your meds to them. You can be like, hey, I have ADHD, give me a stimulant. Hey, I have anxiety, give me a benzo. Um, and places like Cerebral have been able to pop up because ever since of COVID, this law called the Ryan Height Act has been suspended. And the Ryan Height Act was a law made it made after a guy died from an opiate overdose um, in the OOs after he got opiates from some provider who just had like some telemedicine visit with him. So the Ryan Height Act said if a prescriber is going to prescribe a scheduled drug to someone, they need to see them at least once in person every 24 months. So since this act has been suspended indefinitely, all these places like Cerebral and there's many others have popped up and they have taken advantage of the law being suspended. And I do think there are positives to the law being suspended. It definitely increases access. But I think the way the access should be increased is for more individual psychiatrists to be able to see patients versus places that are, you know, uh, there's a lot of concerning behavior that's occurring. Um, and it does seem like there's a good chance that the goal of these institutions is not to increase the access to good mental health care. It's simply to increase the access to psychotropic prescriptions and generate, you know, revenue that way. So that's my thoughts on that. Come for me, I guess. Yeah. If anyone's <laughs> pushing pills, it's these services. I mean, so I've personally seen what's happened with folks where people who didn't have ADHD were getting, um, you know, stimulants, which like, okay, whatever. I mean, you know, like, all right. But if somebody has executive dysfunction because they have bipolar disorder, you can launch them into a manic episode with two doses Absolutely. of a stimulant, like two doses mm -hmm. of Ritalin, and they're hospitalized, and they're they're never functional as they were again because somebody just decided so, like, sight unseen, no developmental history, just write a, a med for them. It's like, you know, psych drugs can be damaging if not applied appropriately, and we should be careful with them, even the ones that are quote-unquote fun to take, um, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, I to me it's like, it's appalling and I don't understand why sometimes I receive judgment because like over prescribing in psychiatry is such a huge issue for me, like on a very, you know, sometimes things with your profession become personal mm -hmm. and it becomes personal to me when I see people's lives have sort of devastating consequences as a result of someone inappropriately prescribing the medication, which if you're in psychiatry, you see it day in, day out, every, every day, essentially, you're, you're seeing, uh, you know, this issue. And uh, it's just so, you know, like our medications are not benign. And the absolute last thing that should be happening is, is people leaving with more issues than they entered with and I think that unfortunately happens like a lot of the time and you see it with I see it with older psychiatrists a lot I think they were trained in an era when medications were pushed heavily and you were supposed to find a medication as a solution for things I see it with uh people who aren't physicians a lot like 
unfortunately does happen significantly with uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners and there's some great ones so I feel bad saying that but it is a much higher percentage that you're going to see that type of prescribing with like a nurse practitioner versus a, a physician uh, I will say there's not many PAs in psychiatry so you you don't really see much either way from them um, I think they're sort of shoved out of the field but yeah that's that's what I've noticed and I feel like you know people can say uh, you know like what's the purpose of talking about things like this or like you know it's just like uh, trying to say negative things about others but I don't think it's negative to say things that are really uh, they're proven by data like you could get stats to back any of the stuff I'm saying and it's resulting in people's lives being destroyed yeah I've I've witnessed that myself and without giving too much info on case, case individual cases because they you know may be listeners of this um, I see it it's disheartening and I think what's really important and to really relate to what we've been talking to too is like a psychiatrist is trained in both the medical model and in some cases like in you know the post-structuralist narrative therapy completely non medical models you know we have completely other ways of thinking about the way that people are experiencing things and without having your feet firmly planted in both camps it's really tough to look at a problem and not throw medication at it right and psychotherapy provides us the ability to do something without throwing a chemistry solution at it because not everything is biological and I'm gonna plug the you know University of Rochester you know John Romano and, and the, the, the biopsychosocial model is important today more than ever because we're realizing that like trauma has a huge part in, in what people experience and what may look like a biological illness may be a trauma reaction. People with PTSD, people with uh, non-epileptic seizures, you know, PNEAs, um, and therapy is the thing that works. But if you didn't know that that was out there or you didn't know how to apply it, you didn't look at individual therapy modalities the way that we look at medications and treatments and select the right one for the person and really personalize mental health treatment, um, you can do damage to people. And so it's important to have our feet firmly planted in both camps and say, like, I don't think a medication is right for you. I think that DBT is probably going to be the right solution for you. And I find myself saying that as the years have gone on more often, um, than I would have expected. Absolutely. And that is something that I think I see much more of any population in the younger generation of psychiatrists. I do think that people who, the psychiatrists who are behind training programs these days tend to feel very strongly about educating residents appropriately and then residents who are in residency now or are recent graduates you know, we were taught that. I think it's wonderful. Like, I think one of the most important things for a psychiatrist is to tell someone just because you're not sleeping doesn't mean we're going to add another medication. Like, you've been on, like, 20, you're already, you're still on, like, five, you have all these issues. Like, you know, saying no and saying that the risks outweigh the benefits is something that does require a level of expertise because not everyone's going to be comfortable 
uh, just saying that in a level of, um, you know, I don't, I don't even know how to really summarize it, but it's, it's well, something that's necessary and important. We, we all remember first do no harm. And in psychiatry, we violated that. We violated the trust of people so many times. The anti-psychiatry movement really came out of our failures in the 1960s, coupled with the sort of postmodernism of the era. Um, Thomas Zaz, the anti-psychiatry psychiatrist, who died by suicide, right? Like, he was a big proponent of people's individual right to end their life. He said he only went to medical school because he wanted to be a psychoanalyst. He said that psychiatric medications were only okay uh, between two consenting adults, and that's a direct quote. And I remember hearing that quote during the, the LGBT rights debate, right? It was like this, it was, it was a very triggering statement for me to read that, that way of thinking about meds. But at the same time, he also encouraged people to stop their meds who should have been taking them, like one of his uh, trainees who had bipolar disorder, who he encouraged to yeah. stop taking his lithium and died. Um, and so we have to remember, I think, that like one central tenet is that first we have to not do something that's harmful. Um, and in therapy, we have the opportunity to have a meaningful intervention that you're not going to have an allergic reaction to. It may be ineffective. It may be frustrating, yeah. which is why it's important to, to know what we covered today, which is that there are different types of therapy. And if you tried one, just like you tried your first antidepressant and it didn't work, um, that's the thing that we all know in, in our culture. But to label therapy as a monolithic entity and say, like, well, I went to this therapist and therapy isn't for me is the same as saying, like, you know, I tried one flavor of ice cream and therefore I don't like ice cream. Um, these are things that, although they have the same external form, are wildly different from each other. And it's worth sticking in there, understanding what you're getting yourself into, and helping your provider, your physician, your primary care doctor, help you select what's going to be right for you. Absolutely agree. And I want to say, too, like one last thought is that a lot of people talk about, oh, this person needs therapy or that person needs therapy. Or I've been telling my mom or my loved one to get therapy and they're ignoring me. And I say, like, you know, I think very, I would almost say, you should almost never tell someone else they need therapy and if you truly think that someone needs therapy the best way the only successful way you can really go about it is first off you shouldn't be encouraging anyone to get therapy if you haven't gotten it yourself but if you have like the way of potentially approaching it if you truly think that someone could benefit from therapy which means they have to be someone who's open to emotional growth is just, you know, bringing up your own positive experiences with therapy and conversation. Um, and I think that's that's something, I guess, that I, I get, see it a lot on the internet now, like, oh, this guy needs therapy, that guy needs therapy. And I'm like, that person would be totally inappropriate for therapy. Like, they have, they have issues that therapy can't touch. So instead of focusing on everyone around you, focus on yourself. And perhaps even, like, you need therapy to deal with some of the people in your life who won't get therapy. And that's okay, too. It's really powerful to share your own experiences with therapy. And I find that if we can be honest that we are humans, we've been through difficult times, um, we've tried a few of these things ourselves. Um, you know, psychiatrists used to try all the drugs that they prescribed. Um, we don't do that anymore. 
Sadly. Sounds like, sounds like a great adventure. <laughs> but it's important to know that we're willing to participate in the process that we advise people to do. People ask me all the time, would you take this? And I say, in fact, I would. And the reason I'm prescribing it is because if I was going through what you were going through, this is exactly what I would take. And now people ask me, like, hey, what would you do if you were going through this? Like, <laughs> people who've been working with you for a while. And I'm like, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you. This is what I'd probably take. And I think that's powerful. I think human beings relate to stories. It's how we think. It's how we remember. We know that memory is highly, highly more effective when you create a story, right? That's what mnemonics are. That's how we got through med school. <laughs> um, and especially if they're a little funny, a little poignant, memorable in some way, um, we relate to them. And that's why it's important to do what we did today and share our own experiences. Yes, and thank you so much. Um, I think everyone who's listening will be blessed and lucky and happy to hear that Mill will likely be joining us for many episodes in the future because you know we're a gang of like people who like to podcast who are vegan who are all cancers is what we decided although there's some debate Allie might be a Gemini cat owner so we have too much in common so it's just gonna it's just gonna go on from here but (laughs) well anyways we hope these two episodes on psychotherapy were helpful and that's it for tonight 